Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Malthrop. I'm chief executive here and a proud member. Today is November 6th. And as we've done since the pandemic hit, hit Ohio, we are live from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. They're our public media partner, and we're deeply grateful for their partnership. And here we are. The outcome of the 2020 presidential election and several Senate and congressional races remain unknown three days after Election Day. The nation is still on edge as all eyes continue to focus on five states, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, whose diligent count of ballots continues in the best traditions of American democracy. President Donald Trump claims voter fraud is, quote, stealing an election win from him, while Democratic candidate and former Vice President Joe Biden reminds the country that, quote, democracy is messy and urges everyone to remain calm while the votes are counted. These two starkly different approaches to a democratic process that has endured for centuries illustrates the nation's deep divides during a year filled with so much social and economic devastation. More than 235,000 deaths related to COVID, an economic recession that parallels the Depression, unnaturally powerful and devastating wildfires, hurricanes and storms, a contentious Supreme Court nomination, and several nasty constitutional disputes. So what can we expect, not only as the outcome of this election, but for the future of our nation and the future of our democracy and our political processes? Our forum today features two past City Club speakers, friends of the City Club. Claire Malone is senior political writer for 538, a data and analysis website primarily covering politics and sports. She's a native of Shaker Heights, Ohio. She previously worked as a member of the editorial staff for The American Prospect and The New Yorker. And she's the author of A Tale of Two Suburbs, a piece outlining the culture clash of white Democrats in Shaker Heights and Parma. Dr. Jeremy Suri is a leading scholar of American politics, social change, and international affairs. He currently holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's also a professor of history and public affairs. He's the author of The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, about which he spoke at the City Club. And he's also the creator of the This Is Democracy podcast. If you have questions for Dr. Jeremy Suri or Claire Malone, please text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can tweet them at the City Club. We'll work them in. Claire Malone and Jeremy Suri, welcome back to the City Club of Cleveland. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. It is so great to have you both. And let me assure all of our listeners and viewers that if there is breaking news, we will let Claire break it. and uh, but so <laughs> so we are keeping track of the of the counts as they're coming in and any declarations or, you know, states that are called. And we will certainly let people know um, as soon as things happen. Claire Malone, let me ask you to just sort of uh, tell us what the state of the race is right now. Well, basically, we're all waiting for uh, Pennsylvania to be called. Uh, I think we're all expecting that Joe Biden will win Pennsylvania. Um, But the networks uh, always want to be cautious and make sure that a number, a threshold is reached that the other candidate, in this case, Trump, can't overcome. 
Um, so I'm sort of expecting a call on Pennsylvania, which I think is a call or a projection for the entire race, because if, if Joe Biden wins Pennsylvania, that will be over 270 uh, electoral votes, and he will uh, be, at that point, the president-elect. Why is Pennsylvania so close? Well, it's actually probably not going to end up being close, um, but just the way that we, we all do this, this vote count, there were so many um, mail-in ballots, and those are counted later on. Those were mostly uh, Democratic votes because, uh, as we all know over the past few months, Democrats were pushing mail-in voting because of the pandemic. Um, and so those votes had to be tabulated later. Pennsylvania waits until the day of the election to start counting those those votes. So um, I actually think the margin will probably be decently cushy for Biden in the end, but it's just a slow count. And, and we're kind of just waiting for the for the uh, the incrementalism to reach a certain point. So people should should keep that in mind that, um, you know, it's going to be close in other states, Georgia, for sure. I, I believe that um, the Trump campaign has indicated, as has the Georgia Secretary of State, that Georgia will probably go into a recount um, because the margins will, will be so slim. But Pennsylvania is actually going to, I think, end up being a little bit um, rosier for Biden as far as a, a vote a vote margin goes. Jeremy Suri, um, this week has been um, one of a, a, a sort of excruciating period of, of anticipation for um, for political watchers of, of all stripes. Um, and it has revealed a lot about the state of American democracy. Um, and I wonder what it has revealed to you or what you have noticed about the state of American democracy. I think it's a great question. There's definitely a lot that we're seeing about ourselves. Uh, we've long said as historians that elections are mirrors of our society. Uh, we're seeing, of course, that we are a deeply divided society, divided between Democrats and Republicans. And the outcome of this election actually looks startlingly like 2012, when uh, Barack Obama defeated Mitt Romney. There are just a few states that are different, Ohio being one of them, Georgia and Arizona in this case. Uh, but we're uh, a country deeply divided between Democrats and Republicans and also deeply divided between urban and rural uh, voters. We're also a country filled with progressive thinkers and filled with anti-progressive thinkers. And the issue of race uh, is really an issue where you can see uh, not a lot of center, and, but a lot of extremes on, on both, both sides. Uh, and then finally, I'd say we are a society now where more people are engaged, at least with voting. They're often engaged in voting and yelling at one another, uh, but they are engaged. Across our history, the moments of greatest turnout have actually been the moments of greatest partisanship. When we're more partisan as we are today, more people actually get involved with voting. So that's a good and a bad thing if you think about partisanship uh, and voting. All of this is to say, Dan, uh, that there's a lot of work cut out for us in bringing the country together and figuring out new ways that people who share such different views of the world can find a way to work together. Claire Malone, um, as we've been thinking or sort of watching things play out, and this is uh, the I don't think there's been this much attention paid to the process of counting ballots um, since 2000 in the disputed, uh, the, the famous hanging Chad moment. Um, the, nevertheless, like this year, people understand voting. They understand the process. They've looked into it. We're having more conversations about the Electoral College, perhaps, than we've had in decades. And um, there's, a, there's something in... There's something that feels quite durable about our, our about the way we do democracy here. 
I hope so. I mean, I, I think, you know, people are certainly more, um, there's certainly been a lot more information about here's how you do your mail-in ballot, uh, mail-in voting is safe, all that stuff. Here's how a vote count works. But on the other side, Dan, there's also a lot of people who, um, who are not getting that same information. There are a lot of people who are getting the information that, um, and this is untrue information I need to stipulate, right, that, that those people are getting the message that there's a problem with mail-in voting. There's a problem with the counting of the ballots. There's not. But a lot of people are getting that message, um, and, and I think a disturbing number of people are getting that message. So um, on the one hand, this is one of the smoothest vote counts, if you're talking about actual facts on the ground, that we've had in, I think, you know, quite a lot of time. People were very vigilant on the ground. I think election, you know, you have these bipartisan election uh, observers and vote counters. For the most part, we didn't see any of these big hiccups. Um, but on the other hand, I think a lot of people, I mean, there were some pretty alarming pre-election polls about the way people felt about uh, the integrity of the election. And obviously that comes from the very top, right? The president um, has, has made some pretty alarming statements, democratically alarming, I would say. Um, so, it's, so I'd say it's a double-edged sword. Unfortunately, I think it's, one of, it's a partisan uh, you know, bubble, whether or not you see the vote process as having unfolded smoothly or not smoothly, because we've seen a lot of you know, um, pretty disturbing scenes from around the country, particularly in uh, Detroit, I would say, of protesters outside, you know, windows saying stop the vote um, in the midst of a, a vote count. So that, so that stuff is, um, makes me a little bit tentative to, to give a full-throated, everyone was more involved with democracy. We are gonna see, at the end of the day, a, a, a historic turnout um, but I, I do want to temper it a little bit with there's there's some real problems. Jeremy, I was just I would say, though, that is how our democracy has historically worked. Unfortunately, we like to tell a story of our democracy of, you know, good patriotic citizens who go out and vote and then go home and happily accept uh, whoever has won the election. Uh, generally, uh, we do accept who has won the election, but not without strife not without violence. Our elections were surrounded by low-scale and large-scale violence in the 19th century and also in the early 20th century as well. So uh, I'm actually pleasantly surprised and optimistic that for all the yelling we're seeing on social media, there does seem to be very, a very strong commitment among Americans to move forward with whoever has more electoral votes and has more votes as a whole, uh, even if people don't like it, similar to 2000 uh, in that sense. Jeremy Suri is a professor of global affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Claire Malone of 538 is with us as well. You're with the City Club Forum. And if you have a question for Claire and Jeremy, please text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. If you're on Twitter, you can tweet it at the City Club. We'll work it into the program. Um, I want to ask you, Jeremy Suri, about the... Um, about the press conference last night, it wasn't exactly a press conference because it was a, a statement just delivered to the press from the president in the White House briefing room. Um, and it was uh, remarkable for a number of reasons. But as a historian, what, what did it tell you? So that was an event we have not seen in our history. It's rare for a historian to say that, where a president of the United States uh, comes before the American public and tells the American public that he doesn't believe in the Constitution and doesn't believe in our democracy. Uh, we've had plenty of presidents who have done undemocratic things and done unconstitutional things, Democrats and Republicans. Uh, but that speech, uh, if I were uh, leading a discussion of it with my students, 
uh, we would very quickly come to the conclusion that everything in that speech explicitly and consciously ran against everything that our democratic constitutional republic is about. Uh, we allow the people to choose who uh, leads our society. All votes are counted equally. You don't get to say your votes for you are legal and the votes for your opponent are illegal. Uh, and uh, whether someone is from an African-American city like Philadelphia or Detroit that was singled out by the president or from a white rural area, uh, after the passage of the 15th Amendment, all those votes count equally. Uh, so uh, it, it ran against everything uh, in our society. And, and actually, I think he largely uh, went much too far even for his supporters. It's very hard to defend uh, what he said. Uh, and um, it, it proves, on the one hand, that this is a person in the office of the presidency who doesn't uh, understand what the presidency is about, even after four years. He understands what he's about, but not what the presidency is about. Uh, but it also, to me, uh, illustrated uh, how out of touch that is, even with most of his supporters. Yes, there will be people who will go out and say, we need to stand with the president, and Senator Lindsey Graham said that yesterday. Uh, but most Republicans uh, are too cowardly to come out and condemn it, but they don't support that. Here's the real problem with what he said. The members of his own party uh, were elected in these elections as well. If you invalidate these elections, you're invalidating all those members of Congress and the Senate. So if you're Tom Tillis or <laughs> you are Susan Collins, you have to think to yourself, uh, what's going on here? We're going to invalidate and question this. So the legitimacy of his own party members uh, was attacked by the presidency and by, by President Trump, and they can't stand for that. Uh, it was, to say it was outrageous is not really the right thing to say. It is to say it was uh, an unconstitutional, undemocratic speech given by a president on a scale at which we've never seen before and to which our system cannot accept. Claire Malone, turning to um, kind of what the results or the, the outcomes as they've been reported so far and what you know about them, um, what, is it, what do these outcomes tell us about the state of our political parties? In some ways, it's complicated. Um, I think we're going to see President Trump lose. So I think we're seeing we're going to see a rejection of Trumpism, which I think Trumpism in the office of the presidency, which I think has a lot to do probably with his mishandling of the COVID-19 crisis. Um, but on the other hand, the GOP won a lot of these down ballot races or House races that we uh, didn't necessarily think they were going to win. So I don't think that we can say here that uh, the country is repudiating Trump Republicanism, right? I think the president has popularized um, a, what I would say, a, a non-ideological GOP, which is to say the GOP used to be about small government. Um, that was kind of a core governing ethos. The president flipped a lot of, of the policy positions of the GOP. And I think his great genius in politics is knowing that it is um, a really attractive thing to voters to thumb their noses at the establishment, at authority. And if Trump's GOP has any ideology, it's contrarianism. Um, so not economic values or small government values, but being against uh, what the establishment says. And I think that actually does hold a lot of currency in 2020 America. Uh, again, you know, people might reject Trump's Trumpism, but you might like your local congressman's Republican Trumpism, right? You know, you might like the fact that he says, I'm against PC culture. I'm going to tell you how it is. Or, uh, you know, you might not be from a district where you like what's happening uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement. You might, uh, you might buy into um, 
the idea that socialism is coming to America, right? Um, and I think that that is still, as we can see from these election results, something that is attractive to some Americans. So we're left with a bit of a, a split here. And I think Joe Biden is is probably going to be faced with, we don't know the election results yet for, this, for control of the Senate, but he's probably going to have a Republican-controlled Senate, which means that he'll be governing from the center a lot more than we thought he would. Frankly, I think it'll be a bit of a repeat of the Obama administration in some ways, where you saw a lot of executive decisions coming down, but a lot of um, stasis and gridlock in the uh, legislative branch. So it's an interesting position for Democrats, where on the other side of things, you know, three weeks ago, I was talking to Democratic strategists about their sort of wish list of what they could get done if Democrats held, uh, you know, the White House, the Senate and the House. You know, there's not going to be a lot of packing of the federal judiciary or, you know, adding uh, even, you know, I think adding seats to the Supreme Court was always out of the question, but even adding additional seats to uh, circuit courts, things like that, that's probably not in the cards. So there's a bit of a readjustment here, which frankly might be more in keeping with how Joe Biden wants to govern. He's a guy who's always throughout the course of his year, his career, this is his third time running for president, um, kind of hewed to his party center, wherever that is at any particular point in time. Joe Biden also um, first spoke at the City Club in 1973, um, and uh, the and he he has a long history of both being sort of governing or or or, or operating and legislating in the center in you know as, as a moderate, but also in sometimes being um, having real foresight about things. He's he's often been kind of ahead of the curve on on many things. Jeremy Surrey, you were trying to get in on the state of the political parties. Uh, well, I was just going to build on uh, Claire's really insightful comments. I, I do think we need to separate the cult of Trump from Trumpism. Uh, Trumpism, as Claire uh, effectively points out, and we would call it something different and probably will in the future, uh, it really is, I think, a broader uh, rejection of what people see as a society governed by elites, uh, people they resent for one reason or another because they're academic elites or they're business elites or whatever it is, and they live in coastal cities or they live in Austin, Texas, uh, and they don't like that. Th that's an old strain. It's a strain that comes out in our history, Dan, whenever we have uh, gaping inequalities and anxieties around that. And ironically, those at the bottom, those who are being hurt the most, often want to attack the progressive elites who they feel are out of touch with them. This, this is William Jennings Bryan. This is George Wallace. This is Donald Trump. And that's not going away. Claire is exactly right. It's not going away because our society is getting more unequal. Uh, COVID has made, made the differences among us even greater than they were before. So that is not going away. But Trump has taken this to a new level. Uh, he's taken this to a level that's really burning down the, the house, and that's what his speech was about yesterday. It was totally in line with his background, right? He was it was startling, but also predictable. This is a man who doesn't care about governance, even those at the very bottom, even those who are angry and supporting candidates like Trump. Uh, they still, by most surveys, want health insurance. They still want their social security checks. Uh, they still want clean air. Uh, so they're never going to embrace. Uh, traditional liberal projects in a sense, uh, but they don't really want to burn things down. And local and national leaders who can explain to them in non-ideological and practical ways uh, why certain government policies need to be supported to keep them safe can be effective. We can have mask mandates even from Republicans if we don't have Donald Trump shouting against them in the White House. We can actually have a discussion of health care if we don't have Donald Trump. Our COVID crisis would be less bad, even with the same Trumpist ideology, if we didn't have Donald Trump in the White House. So that will be a big change, and that will be something that 
Joe Biden working with some Republicans like a Mitt Romney uh, can make progress on, I think. You know, yesterday, Jeremy, the in that press conference, um, the I don't think it had the effect that it didn't appear to have the effect that the president intended. Um, I it seemed as if he intended to lay out a case and galvanize people to push somehow push something towards towards his own continuation of power. Um, he got very little traction. Um, the responses, I, you know, from the media, even Fox News, were tepid and you know and critical. Um, and it and the vote counts continued, right? And judges, you know, who were hearing lawsuits responded the way they do, which said to me that the institutions are still very strong. Yes, I think our, our institutions are remarkably resilient, and in fact, in certain ways, they've become more resilient than we were in, let's say, two thousand because people were prepared for this. Again, it was shocking, but it wasn't surprising. And the Biden team and the media, they had had long conversations about how to respond to this. They were labeling his tweets. YouTube took things down, the you know, uh, videos encouraging violence. In 2000 and 2016, we weren't prepared for this kind of behavior. And our institutions, therefore, had a hard time reacting. They assumed people would play by certain rules that they didn't play by. We were prepared this time. I'll also say that uh, what was really striking about the speech, which made it ineffective, Dan, is that he offered no way forward. He offered a series of complaints. It, you know, it, it sounded to me like the kid who's lost uh, a game of one-on-one -on -one with me playing basketball, right? This often happens with my daughter. She still thinks she can beat me, but she can't quite yet. She loses, and then she complains, right, that I did X, Y, Z, da-da-da-da, but there's, the game's over. That's it. That you, you can complain all you want, right? Uh, he doesn't think strategically about how to use the institutions of government to try to get where he wants to go. The Bush team in 2000 had a very clear strategic plan that they marketed to us and to their supporters in a way that built step-by-step step to an outcome. That was a speech lashing out. And unless you're willing to burn everything down, there's really nothing you can build on. What, what are you supposed to do after you hear that? What does he want you to do? The only real outcome, which is what's really dangerous about it, this is where he really has effect, is if you really believe him and you want to follow him, then you want to go out and act violently. And that's what's scary about that. That's the effect he's having, I think, is motivating a small number of people to go out and do violent things. Well, to be clear, though, we have not seen that yet. And we don't know that we will. I, I hope we won't. I hope we won't. I, I fear that he is signaling, signaling that. Jeremy Suri is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, author of The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. Claire Malone of 538 is with us as well. Claire Malone, the, um, the, one of the surprise storylines uh, of the exit polls suggest that, and these are early and sort of untested and unweighted exit polls, but suggest that the GOP made significant gains with voters of color. Yeah. I'll answer that in a second. And first, I have to just make my, my, my general exit poll caveat, which is because of the pandemic, we're just not relying on exit polls this year. So at 538, we're relying on once we have all the votes in, we'll go through that data. But yes, Dan, your point does stand, which is um, the president did, perhaps your, your listeners will have heard, in Florida, he did much better among uh, Cuban-American voters in Miami-Dade County than expected. Now, you know, a thing that I always like to caveat is the Hispanic vote in the United States is really different, right? It's, uh, it's from lots of different countries. Cubans in, in Florida and Venezuelans in Florida might tend to be much more conservative than 
uh, a first-generation or second-generation Mexican-American living in Arizona. Um, who it's a more urban Arizona is a more urban state in Maricopa County and Phoenix, where a lot of those people live. There's a lot more women, and there's a younger uh, population there. So all that stipulated. I think um, what we're seeing in the in Trump's inroads with um, Hispanic voters and Black voters is frankly probably going to end up being the gender gap. America, uh, American men and American women view politics very differently, and that goes for people of color and white people. So white men and black men and Hispanic men uh, might tend to see Trump more favorably. And I think some of this goes to, and I should say the black vote and the Hispanic vote did overwhelmingly tend to go more for the Democrat Joe Biden. But if we're looking at you know the past four years of American culture, if you go back to the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, which sort of coincided with partisanship and the Me Too movement, American men and American women saw those hearings in a hugely different way. In 2016, we had the biggest gender gap in the election, which means men and women um, voted really differently. I think you see a lot of split marriages. College-educated white women in particular have been a fast moving to the Democratic side of the spectrum. White men a little, white college-educated men a little bit slower. Um, so I think that you're seeing uh, once you get past the numbers, what's happening in our culture is um, a lot more people are seeing and being shown the worldviews of other people, including perhaps their spouse, right? They might not have seen the world through the eyes of their spouse. Or, um, you know, we can talk about the, the rise in prominence of racial protests this summer. The U.S. is probably not going to be a majority white country by around 2040 something. So we're seeing the idea that um, a prevailing white male narrative in America is is no longer going to be the norm. And we're in kind of, I think, a messy transition period where people are figuring out how to process that and how and, and that is exhibited, I think, in some of those um, those gender gaps uh, among Hispanic and, and black men. But again, too early to tell. But that's that's sort of my my instinct. Eric Liu of the of Citizen University was on National Public Radio earlier this week, and he said the the project right now is that we're building the fir Earth's first mass multiracial democratic republic, <laughs> which is an extraordinary project. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, it's a very um, you know, people have said this over and over again. Now you live in interesting times. We are living in interesting times. It's a massive country. It's a geographically diverse country. It's an ethnically diverse country. And I do think that's a strength of ours. We're going to turn to questions from the audience in just a moment. If you have a question, please text it to 330-541-5794. That number again to text your question is 330-541-5794. And you can tweet it at the City Club if you are on Twitter. And as we just before we we get there, Claire Malone is um, if the trends current trends hold, and Joe Biden becomes the president elect, Ohio will no longer have its uh, its its reputation as the bellwether battleground. Jeremy, for for our mm -hmm. radio listeners, yeah. Jeremy just gave a thumbs up to that. Um, but Claire Malone, first, um, how significant is that? Or is it just was it just a statistical quirk? You know, I think probably to the to the chagrin of a lot of uh, Ohio Democrats who maybe have seen this coming for a while. It has been coming for a while that Ohio has been trending more and more red, um, and for for reasons you know our our neighbors Michigan and Wisconsin. Um, you know, Wisconsin is a you know a longer I think a, a more storied history of being um, a progressive state. Ohio also has um, Appalachian. 
uh, ten, you know, it's an Appalachian region in, in the southeast of Ohio, and there is a, a trove of white non-college educated voters. But I would also say that we're in the midst nationwide of um, what your election night map looks like. And what I mean by that is, okay, Ohio is no longer the swing state, but I think Georgia is a new purple state, a new swing state. Arizona is a new purple state, a new swing state, potentially even Texas. And I think that's because, you know, it's so it's moving from the Rust Belt to the Sun Belt. And so we're going to we're going to we're in the midst of, I think, pundits ch changing their conventional wisdom. Right. It's no longer going to be uh, ooh, the blue wall states. We're going to look more and more in the next couple of election cycles, I think, to, to the, the warmer parts of the country. So the southwest and and the southeast. Jeremy, as a as sorry, a, Ohio. No, yeah, well, it's your Ohio too, Claire. Um, the, <laughs> Jer Jeremy Suri, uh, as a historian, I, I sense that it gives you some pleasure when these historical trends are upended. Absolutely, I, I see that as a sign of progress historically, and progress doesn't have to be for one party or the other. Uh, our system has many, many flaws, and one of them is that it tends to get stuck in ruts around particular areas because of the nature of our electoral system. The math made Ohio, as much as anything else, uh, a turning point uh, for our electoral system. With the election turning now to competition in Georgia, in Arizona, in Texas, quite frankly, uh, that allows more issues to come to the fore and more populations to be heard from uh, in different ways. Uh, having the election turn on Ohio, quite frankly, made it much more of a white election than it had to be just as having the election turn on Florida gives Cuban voters a particular influence. Nothing against white or Cuban voters, but our system advances when uh, new kinds of voters have voice. And this shifting has always historically meant that we therefore get a dynamism in the system and it gives an opening. Uh, again, not just for Democrats. This could be an opening for a new Republican Party uh, that appeals to Latino voters building on some of the work Trump has done but maybe going further uh, in, in other ways. Latino voters in Texas are very winnable by Republicans. Uh, Trump is not that popular with them. Uh, he can win some votes with them, he can close the margin, but you could imagine uh, a Republican who appeals to Latinos uh, offering economic opportunity, health insurance, and a better immigration set of policies and, and winning a large number of them. When Fareed Zakaria just wrote, I believe in the Washington Post this morning, that, that the Democrats have failed to think about communities of color in ways that aren't defined by the specific experience of black Americans? Yes and no. Um, I think part of that is that the Democratic Party is so dependent on African-American voters. That's the story of Georgia, isn't it, right? Uh, the most consistent African-American voters are, are African-American women, and they're the most consistent Democratic voters as a whole. Uh, and yet the party hasn't done enough for them in many respects. Uh, too often, uh, Democrats think of Latino and Latina voters as following democratic issues uh, that African-Americans have found attractive, and that's not always true. But I don't think the Republican Party has done an effective job of reaching out to them. That's where I disagree with Fareed a little bit. I think the question is really who is going to reach out to them in what way. That's what makes Texas, in some ways, the new Ohio, right? Because Texas is going to be, it already really is, about 50-50 Hispanic and non-Hispanic. Uh, and what is that going to look like? Who's going to make the appeal to them? A Barack Obama kind of figure can win by running as a Hispanic uh, figure, by a Latino figure, but also appealing to traditional issues, or someone on the right who appeals to Latino issues can win in Texas. Claire, you look like you want to get. I in. mean, I think George W. Well, I think George. I think George W. Bush would would disagree with you. You know, I mean, I talked to Carl Rove this summer for for a piece about um, the GOP's 
I would say consistent choices to appeal to white voters above uh, Latino voters or voters of, of color. And, and, you know, he basically said uh, the GOP should really have followed what they mandated after uh, Trump. I mean, sorry, Romney lost in 2012, which is we need to make better appeals to Latino voters. I think probably what Fareed Zakaria was saying, having not heard the clip, is that uh, black voters and black people in America have a very specific experience rooted in slavery and that Latino voters, many of them are coming to America, um, you know, they're first generation, second generation uh, immigrants, although obviously that's not the case in like Texas and Colorado. A lot of people have been there since before the U.S. was was founded. But the idea that the black experience in America is very different, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, racial hierarchies are not unique to, you know, uh, colonial India, right? America has those and that and ones that we don't talk about there. And I think that that's an uncomfortable thing for Democrats to unpack. Also, probably there aren't enough uh, Latino um, you know, figures in the Democratic Party of prominence. They don't have the same kind of, you know, um, the black uh, church is really effective in helping to turn out voters in the for the Democratic Party. Souls to the polls kind of uh, movements have been, you know, really effective. There's not the same outreach um, and and depth of that in in the Latino community. Um, but I do think that that the Republicans are uh, are doing probably some some canny soul searching. Mitch McConnell himself kind of basically said uh, in his you know vic victory press conference, we need to win more women. And uh, I'm sure he'll probably also start to think about you know certain places where he, they can make inroads with with voters of color. Let's move to questions from the audience. Again, if you have a question for Claire Malone of 538 or Jeremy Surrey of UT Austin, please text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club. We'll work it in. Question for both of you. It appears that Biden's lead in many states, like Pennsylvania and Nevada, is insurmountable. But those states are still considered too close to call. Couldn't this lack of decision-making just give President Trump more time to spread misinformation about voting and the process of vote counting? Jeremy Suri. Uh, I, I worry a little bit about that, but I actually think right now it makes a lot of sense to be deliberate about showing that we're doing everything we can to count every vote. The argument that the, that the Biden people are making appropriately in the Democratic Party and most American citizens is that this election is about counting the votes and whoever has the most votes in the most states with the most electoral votes should be president. And so I think it's wise not to be premature in calling this. But it's also true that the longer this lingers, the more time there is for uh, frivolous lawsuits and all kinds of outrageous things to be said. So we have to find that Goldilocks position. I'll be very comfortable and I think we'll be in a good place if this race is called by this evening. Uh, and I think it will be. If this lingers for three, four more days, then we're in a different situation. Claire Malone? Yeah, from, from a newsroom perspective, we're, we're actually owned by ABC News, so a little bit clued into to what's going on there. I think the networks want to be extremely sure of their calls. I think a lot of internally, probably those decision desk people are sure of their calls. But network executives, uh, I think, probably weigh in here a little bit because if a state had to, if a, if a network had to retract a call, if you go back and think to 2000, when Dan Rather said, you're all probably mad at us and you have every right to be when, when networks pulled back their call of Florida, everyone wants to do as much as they can to avoid that, to make an extremely clear call so that the Trump campaign can't can't push back and say, well, there's, you know, 
700,000 votes left, right? They want to be extremely clear, be able to lay out the margins and, and kind of also, I think, process the politics within each individual network. Uh, Fox News, I think, is perhaps the most prominent example of um, internal politics coming to bear. The Trump campaign was extremely angry at Fox News for calling Arizona uh, a couple days ago. Well, so in Arizona, lots, of, lots of stuff going on. Arizona is an interesting case because the, their, the AP had called Arizona for Vice President Biden and other news organizations have held off on calling Arizona one way or the other. Yeah, Fox apparently did some pre-election surveys that apparently, were, you know, we're not privy to them. Those are proprietary, but they apparently have a lot of confidence in their call. And I think it's, you know, I think a lot of people said, listen, it's premature from what we, we, we can say. Um, but, you know, they're sticking by it. Um, and I think, you know, to the credit of their decision desk, because they're getting an awful lot of pressure, both from the opinion hosts at Fox and from uh, the Trump campaign. But, and it's proving accurate. It's proving that they were right. I mean, I, I think Biden is going to win uh, Arizona, and so they called it right. Claire Malone, was the outcome from Tuesday a national instance of the so-called Bradley effect, where people respond to phone polls by saying that they will vote for one candidate because of being afraid of backlash, but ultimately do not vote for that candidate? And in other words, is polling broken? <laughs> I think my answer, you know, today on Friday, as we're still counting the vote, is I don't know yet. We don't have all the data, but certainly, you know, in a place like Florida, um, there was a, a polling miss. I mean, you know, I think there's something, there's been, uh, this is a far too online conversation, but there's been a lot of, I think there are really um, good conversations to have about how polling gets better in an age where you probably don't pick up a cell phone call from a number you don't know, and we're still working to perfect internet polls. And then there's a whole existential conversation of how much should these very tuned in, um, typically, frankly, college-educated white male people drive our, our political conversation, people who are constantly having their eyes on the polls. There's lots of conversations to be had. What I think that 538, because I feel like this always edges into a, a defense of 538, is what we're trying to do with the polls is, is help people. Polls aren't going away, right? Politicians are always going to rely on polls. News media organizations are always going to try to you know, put out a poll, perfect a poll. We're trying to give our readers poll literacy. We're trying to explain to you the fact that, like, actually, when all is said and done, there might be a really big polling error in Florida but it might be okay in other places. Why is that the case? Was there a Bradley effect in Florida? We don't know. Were, poll were pollsters missing um, you know, certain kinds of Latino voters? We don't know. But I do think that you know, it's, it's probably not the answer to fully turn away from polls, but to, 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 to talk a little bit more about the changes undergoing uh, that, are, that are being undergone in the industry and, and, um, and just you know, walking people through the fact that like, we don't just do polls, we report, right? So you're trying to, you're trying to give people the best approximation of what's going to happen. Um, but you know, this is probability and, and some of the probabilities mean that in certain instances, what you didn't think was gonna happen, happened. Trump had a 10% chance of winning in 2016 and look what happened. And, and 538 had projected that he was- uh, Sorry, uh, sorry, of winning, and, and that 10% is winning the uh, electoral college, but not the popular vote, which is what ended up happening. So, you know, right. the very... Uh, and and I, I believe the 538 forecasts were that he had a 10 or 11% chance of doing the same this year as well. 
Yeah, we had it. So we've changed the way we, we we said we had an 80. He had an uh, Joe Biden had an 89 in 100 chance of winning the White House because we realized that it's important about how you phrase probabilities. So it might seem small, but yes, uh, an, know, 11, an 11 in 100 chance of, of, of threading that <laughs> yes. needle, which is, you know, yes. like rolling a one like eight times or whatever it is. Right. <laughs> um, Jeremy, sir, you, you were leaning in there. Did you have a, a, a thought about polling? Yes, I, I do. Uh, I, I love polls. They, they give us uh, a lot of information, but we have to understand how to use polls. And I do think the polling industry, uh, which does extraordinary work, has done a poor job of educating us how to think about polls. A poll is a snapshot of how a particular set of voters seem to be feeling at a particular moment. But that doesn't always reflect what comes out in the election. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt was, was really thoughtful about this. His sense was that you know what an election is going to be about, not by what people tell you they're feeling, but how they're actually acting. Look at their behavior. What are they doing? Uh, and I think we sometimes use polling as a shortcut to try to understand the voters. They're two different things. Pollers, polling doesn't tell us who the voters are and what the voters think. It simply tells us how they feel in reaction to a set of questions at a certain moment. And, and I think it's less about 10% or 15%, more about the directions in the way people are feeling, how they're acting, uh, how they respond to certain things. And there's no doubt that even though the polls didn't necessarily show this, there wasn't the enthusiasm for Joe Biden among certain Latino and Latina communities in Florida and in Miami-Dade County that the overall polling made us believe was there. Um, just as in parts of Texas, there was a lot of enthusiasm for Biden and in other parts, less enthusiasm. That's not always reflected in the polls. The polls are a snapshot. A photograph of your family doesn't actually tell you as much about your family as watching their behavior over time. That's what really matters. Um, this question uh, may be actually for me. The speakers say we haven't seen violence yet. What do they call the Trump caravans forcing vehicles off the roads and blocking highways, et cetera? Um, and that was it was it was I who said, well, we haven't seen any violence yet. But I was mostly thinking about the most, you know, kind of horrific forms of violence that that seem to be, uh, you know, looming as this election drew near. Claire Malone. Yeah, I mean, I think we've we've had discussions, internal newsroom discussions about um, we want this election to be safe. We didn't you know, we, you don't want to I think you have to walk a real fine line in in, um, in the news media of. Uh, covering disturbing anti-democratic behavior and also not trying to wind people up, right? To give people a, a view of, you know, there aren't riots in the street right now, right? I, I'm in New York City right now. Things are peaceful, right? Um, that there were there were disturbing instances and uh, disturbing lack of condemnation from, uh, you know, from President Trump, from his campaign, from, you know, GOP senators, who, who kind of lauded that incident, that's not a good, uh, you know, rhetorical setup. But also, you know, I would say we in the media don't want to stir up these things of like, oh, we're on the brink of a second civil war. We, we want to push the idea. And I think it's true right now that this is a peaceful election, that there's no evidence of massive fraud at, by any stretch, and that things are, uh, you know, if we're seeing disturbances, they seem to be um, relatively small and unfortunately not condemned by the powers that be. Question here about the Electoral College, Professor Suri. Um, is a statewide initiative started by citizens to put change on the ballot the best method to attempt to change a winner-take-all system to a proportional or other more democratic method? 
Uh, great question. Uh, just a little uh, historical statement about the Electoral College. Uh, the founders never called it the Electoral College. They never believed we would consider and continue to elect presidents this way. This was a last minute compromise on their part, and it was also used to protect slavery. And here we are 200 years later stuck with it. Uh, and it's very hard to work one's way out of it. Uh, proportional uh, allocation of electors that can be decided by each state on its own as Nebraska and Maine have done that. You don't need any national activity. I think that's a very effective thing to do. Uh, it allows your state not to be winner take all. And so if someone is within a few points, as in Georgia, now uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't all go to one or the other. Uh, the fundamental reform of the Electoral College, though, is going to eventually require a constitutional amendment. Uh, it is a deeply unpopular institution in our country but it's being held in place by those who benefit from it. It's sort of the same issue we have with campaign finance, right? The people who benefit from it are the ones who stand in the way of any change. We can begin to make this happen. I don't know if it will with this Senate, uh, but bringing DC in as a state and Puerto Rico in as a state at least shifts the numbers within the Electoral College. But ultimately we need to move to a, what might still be a hybrid form of popular vote and some attention to territory and region, but one that doesn't skew things in, in, this, in this direction. In the late 19th century, uh, the difference in votes, the, how much a vote mattered for electoral college composition between the most populous and least populous states was about eight to one. Now it's close to 100 to one. One vote in Wyoming has 100 times influence on electors. Uh, for president as a vote in California does. That's, that's crazy. Uh, how do we move toward this? We do have to eventually talk about constitutional reform. We, we have a whole set of areas, Dan, where we are uh, living as a 21st century society in a 19th and early 20th century mode because we've been so static in our thinking about democratic governance. It's time that changes. This is what I'm preaching to young people all the time. These issues of, of structural reforms to democracy are coming up again and again in um, in mainstream conversation in ways that I haven't witnessed before in my lifetime. Claire Malone, um, have the have you or your colleagues at Five Thirty Eight um, created a map of what the electoral vote would look like if it had been proportional across the country? Just a sort of theoretical map. I don't know. <laughs> You're catching me on a question. I don't know. Someone okay. could. Someone could have very well done that on the data viz side of things. I'm not sure. Okay. Okay. I would. If but anybody, yeah. I mean. But it, it, it. I would love to see it. it. It will be a large. Yeah, I know. It will be a large popular vote margin for Biden. I think. Uh, it looks know, like even bigger. Staff project, even, yes. even larger than 2016. It could be seven million. Could be seven million votes. Uh, it was three million in 2016. So quite right. substantial. Right. Right. Uh, what role do you think the left needs to play in the coming years to make inroads and impact and change how uh, progressive politics are viewed? Jeremy Suri? I think uh, there are three levels to this question. I've, I'm asked this a lot. Uh, first, I think at the national level with a uh, Senate that will either be under Republican control or tied if, if uh, the two Georgia races uh, go the Democratic way uh, for the Senate, uh, Democrats have to find a number of issues on the left that appeal to people in the progressive wing of the party but are also sellable to the center. Healthcare is one of them. That doesn't mean we're going to go to a nationalized health plan. But the Affordable Care Act is now popular across the country, even with people on the Republican side of the House. Uh, there has to be some inroads there, and Biden has to be empowered to make deals. That's at the national level what the left has to do. At the state level, uh, the left has to get people elected to state legislatures. Our state legislatures do not reflect the views of the citizens in their states. 
Uh, and in fact, our state legislatures are filled with people who are not as qualified to be state legislators as others in their states. I mean that on the Democratic and Republican side. In Texas, it's because it's not a well-paid job. It's a part-time job. Who can afford to do this who's a serious person, right? So we have to think about that. We have to mobilize and pay attention to state races. The left has not paid enough attention to state races. The right certainly has. And then at the local level, I think where re real progressive reform can be pursued now is at the local level, working to reform police departments, working to bring anti-racism into the ways in which local funds are allocated, the way schools are run, the way voting occurs at a local level, the way homelessness is dealt with. This doesn't mean uh, pursuing socialism in any sense. There's no real socialism in the United States. It means about pursuing what we were talking about a minute ago, Dan, structural reform starting from the ground up. And my last point on this is throughout our history, that's where structural reform always starts. The civil rights movement started locally. The progressive movement started locally in places like Cleveland. Uh, it needs to start there now. Claire Malone, in terms of the, the question is sort of what does, the, uh, what does the left need to do to grow its, um, to grow or to bring more people in to their platform? Yeah, I mean, I'm always, you know, as a, as a journalist, I'm always a little wary of, of offering solutions for parties. But what I will say is that um, I think a lot of people in different parts of the country, because our, 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 our politics have become so nationalized that people, you know, to Jeremy's point about building out state, state governments, um, you know, under Barack Obama, I think, you know, we saw a much more nationalized um, politics. And frankly, Democrats didn't do very well at the state level. And I think um, it can be a problem for people when they don't see themselves, like let's say you're living in Northeast Ohio and you don't see yourself in the National Party and you don't have a really good sense of who Ohio Democrats are, who your local Democrat is. I think that's a problem for people. I would, I would broaden it out and say um, the fact that a lot of our regional news organizations have been completely hollowed out is a huge problem. One of the things that I think was really discordant for people in the 2016 election, and frankly, towards you know throughout the Obama presidency was, again, I'm talking about Northeast Ohio, you might have seen the president talking about, President Obama talking about a recovery, and that was true, but it wasn't the same in all places. So you might have been experiencing in Northeast Ohio or in other parts of the country, frankly, a pretty hard time and you weren't getting a lot of that news because maybe your local paper shut down or you know, maybe it had gone to two days a week, whatever it might be. I think that's a really big problem for our country. You know, it's not just about elected officials. Politics and civics has to do with how you're getting your news, if you trust your news. And you might not trust someone from New York City as much as you trust someone who you know lives a 15 minute drive away. So I would say there's a lot about you know, um, consolidation of media that's a big problem for democracy, actually. Question uh, from another listener. If Biden wins, will the Republican Party still espouse the values of Trump? We were talking about Trumpism uh, beyond the White House. If so, is there the potential for a third political party, a moderate Republican type party, for instance, to emerge? Claire Malone? I don't think so. I mean, you know, I think I think what might happen is you start to see First of all, I think that, that Trumpism is probably here to stay in the Republican Party. People have realized, uh, some people have realized that that's really a way to win and people like that. There are certainly other Republicans who are uncomfortable with that, who I do not think will leave the Republican Party, but will maybe in, in a, a 2020, 20, 2024 
uh, Republican primary kind of put forth more, you know, I would say old school GOP country club kind of platforms. But I think you'll probably start to see bigger divisions within the party, just kind of how you're seeing in the Democratic Party of, you know, the very far left and then kind of more of the old blue dogs and then sort of, you know, a, a lefty establishment. I think you're just going to see more more bubbles within each party. Jeremy Surrey, the Republican Party was a third party once. Absolutely. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was the first Republican president. People forget that. And it began as a third party. Actually, there were for a time four parties. They were a critique of the know-nothings and the Whigs before them. Uh, and uh, I, I think the way partisanship works in our society is we have a devolution to two parties, but we have moments of crisis when parties split. And I think the Republican Party has, in fact, uh, split. Uh, in Texas, I think there's, you, you see an example of that. Trump did win Texas, but he did not run as strong statewide as someone like Senator John Cornyn did. And John Cornyn likes to see himself, even though he plays the Trump game, he likes to see himself not as Ted Cruz, but as more of an old line George W. Bush uh, Republican. So those two parties are at war, especially on foreign policy, by the way. We haven't talked about foreign policy. Uh, there are a lot of Republicans who believe in free trade. There are a lot of Republicans who believe uh, Russia is a menace. Uh, there are a lot of Republicans who believe in NATO. Uh, when I go to conferences to talk to Republicans, that's, what, that's those, what the foreign policy elite think. So there are two different parties there. What's going to happen if we follow the historical pattern is there will be a political entrepreneur and a set of supporters who will find a way to bridge those differences. And so maybe the party will remain uh, particularly uh, offensive on certain issues that people don't like, but it will also marry that to more moderate policies, particularly for foreign policy and maybe some economic uh, issues as well. That's how our system evolves. Well, just uh, FYI, uh, on November 10th, next Tuesday night, we the City Club is hosting a forum on just that topic, foreign policy and the next administration. Um, and that starts at 7.30. Um, so just to... As we're we're wrapping up the hour here, Claire, um, how are you going to spend this afternoon? What are you looking for besides like the final results? And what's the next the the next story that's going to carry or the next piece that's going to carry your byline? Well, I'm definitely I'm definitely looking for the results. Uh, I'll I'll have a piece probably going up a, a sort of um, maybe this afternoon, uh, about, kind of reflecting on how politics has changed for us over the past four years. Um, you know, if, if President Trump loses, which I think it's looking like he will, his impact won't go away. The permeation of politics in our pop culture, um, you know, so there's there's kind of that just sort of reflecting on the on, on the Trump era. Um, and I think, you know, there's going to be a lot to parse through as far as, um, you know, how strong President Trump's, you know, racist messaging actually was. I think a lot of Democrats you saw on Tuesday and Wednesday, once they realized that this wasn't going to be, you know, a landslide election, there was a kind of, I would say, um, period of, you know, emotional uh, of sadness, right? That 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 the president hadn't been repudiated in this way that they thought he would. That it's not a mandate election. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of parsing through which parts of President Trump's message resonated and why, and which parts didn't. And I think a lot of it probably has to do with COVID, but. You know, I think it's, it's still very early for me, and I'm just, you know, I myself am in processing everything. But waiting for waiting for a race call, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Jeremy Surrey, and briefly, please, um, the president clearly changed the presidency. Does it snap back like a rubber band if Biden <laughs> enters the office? 
you asked me the biggest, most difficult question with the <laughs> least amount of time, Dan. It doesn't snap back, but there will be a reaction to much of what he does. We are going to be going into a period of congressional government where Congress asserts itself more, whether it's Democrat or Republican. So some of the things Trump did will last, but many will spark a counter reaction, as happened after Andrew Jackson's presidency. We'll get, we'll get legislating from the legislature? Uh, we'll get limits on the president's use of money. Uh, limits on his use of military force and requirements for him not to appoint interim people to run all the federal agencies. Jeremy Suri is the Mac Brown pro uh, Professor, Distinguished Chair for Leadership and Global Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. And Claire Malone writes about politics for 538. And we are so delighted that both of you could join us. Thank you so much. Thanks also to you for listening and to members, sponsors, and donors, and others who support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. You can find out more and join them at cityclub.org slash thank you. Next week, we'll be discussing the American Jewish Committee's new recently released State of Anti-Semitism in America report. There's a lot to hear there. Thank you very much. Stay safe. I'm Dan Malthrop. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.